Today on the Hopecast, we will continue our study through Romans chapter 9, answering the question, does the nation of Israel have privileged status before God? Does God give salvation or free pass to those who are descended physically by the flesh from Abraham? Or, as Augustine and Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and John Owen, John Bunyan, William Carey, Charles Spurgeon, R.C. Sproul, and many other theologians have contended, are we saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? These are the questions we hope to answer today on the Hopecast, so stay tuned. Well, welcome back to the Hopecast. My name is Kevin. I am here in the heart of Texas. Of course, it's a rainy day today, but we're together, and I'm glad for it. Today we're going to be exploring the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, from a classically reformed, covenantal, confessional perspective. I'm your host, Pastor Kevin Malloy. As always, our goal today is to understand the whole of Scripture and see the wonder of grace from cover to cover in the Bible. So I'm glad you're here. Let's get started. Remember, uh, if you like what we do here, if you're learning, if you're growing, Help us out by sharing this podcast and by liking and subscribing. It really makes a big difference for us. Now, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, let's jump into Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, remembering that in Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 25, Paul wrote this. He said, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is the doctrine of justification. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul unpacks justification by grace alone uh, through chapter 8. So chapters 1 through 8. But he says in chapter 8 this, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. If we are unified with him, we are in Christ Jesus. And therefore, there is no condemnation. We are justified. We are redeemed. We are forgiven and set free from the dominion and power of sin and death, all because we're in Christ Jesus. Amen. And we recall that having set forth this in verse 1 of chapter 8, Paul then explains how this came about. And it was not because of adherence to the law. No, the law could only curse and condemn the disobedient sinner. But through the gospel of grace, we are redeemed and restored and regenerated and adopted into the family of God. We talked about that last week. And it's because of Christ's accomplishment of this covenant of works perfectly fulfilling the law, fulfilling in himself what Adam failed to do, and by his sacrificial atonement on the cross, his propitiation by his own blood, that through faith in him, as our representative, as our federal head, as he talks about in Romans chapter 5, he declares us righteous, and his covenant of grace is extended to us so that we are no longer under condemnation, but under grace. Amen. What a great and glorious gospel. And we can rest in Christ. 
And this is why when we get to the end of chapter 8, as you recall, verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the setup that prepares us for chapter 9, which describes the doctrine of sovereign election. So what I want to do is I want to read the chapter again this week, and then we'll zero in on verses 6 to the end of this chapter, exploring the objections today, the objections to sovereign election, the objections to this sovereign choice that God makes, this objections to is God fully sovereign over our salvation. Paul's going to address it. We're going to talk about it. Let's look at the scripture right now. Romans 9, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? What have you, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared before him for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and those, 
And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen. So again, here in chapter 9, Paul answers some key questions that he raised earlier in his letter to the church in Rome, especially uh, some questions from Romans chapter 3 about God's faithfulness to his promises to the Jews. He says in chapter 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Jews and Gentiles alike, that we all deserve divine punishment. In other words, we stand condemned. We stand condemned because not only of our sin choices, but because of our sin nature, our nature in Adam. Having been born in the flesh, born in Adam, we stand condemned. And this condemnation cannot be absolved, and it cannot be mediated through observance to the law. No, it cannot. It must be atoned for, must be paid for by Christ alone, our mediator and our federal head. Christ alone, then, is our salvation for both Jews and Gentiles, we see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. But then the question comes up when we get to this part in his letter, what about the Jews? Don't the Israelites have privileged status? That's the question he asks. Aren't they saved because of their Jewishness? And what we saw last week was that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's it. That's it. One way to be saved that the gospel does not break God's promises to Israel. Rather, Christ confirms these promises. And we'll see this later on in this letter in chapter 15. Paul says this is because salvation has always been by faith. Not descent, not, not physical descent, not by the flesh, but by faith. Not by the law, not by the flesh, but by grace through faith. So last week we saw Paul summarizing his heart for the people, um, his brethren, right? The Jews, the Israelites. And he talks about what great privilege they had as a people set apart by God to be a nation that heralds the Christ. That through this, this nation, the Christ would come and be a blessing to all nations. And he talks about their descended by the flesh of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Of course. And the Christ would be part of that line, descended from the royal line of David. And he would fulfill all the prophecies and the markers set apart to show that he was the one and only Son of God and Son of Man. And so as we look at verses 6 through 33 today in Romans 9, Paul addresses the problem of Israel's unbelief, saying in verse 6, 
but it's not as though the word of God had failed. Now, we talked about that last week just a bit, but let's talk about it a little bit more. The question behind that statement is, has God broken his promises to Israel? He says, no, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. He says, there's no promises that have been broken here. Now, he can say this because Paul's description of the gospel of grace all throughout Romans has been consistent that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, both for Gentiles and for Jews. And Paul says, nothing has failed. God is faithful. He is a promise keeper. We said this last week, the problem is not God. The problem is us, that we are promise breakers, that we are unfaithful where he is faithful. The problem here that Paul is describing is that the people have actually misunderstood what it actually means to be of Israel. And he's explaining it here in chapter 9. He says, a child of Abraham is not one who is related by physical or natural descent. But only those who believe in the Christ are children of Abraham. Those who trust in Christ by faith, those who have been united with Christ, are children of Abraham. Galatians 3.29 echoes this same sentiment, saying, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Again, this, this child of promise instead of child of the flesh this contrast. In Romans 6 through 8, he says that, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now he quotes here, referring back to Abraham, and Abraham actually had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael, a child of the flesh, Isaac, a child of the promise. This is what he says. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. We saw this last week. Jesus makes a similar distinction in John 8, talking with unbelieving Jews, Jewish leaders, in fact, in John 8, 33 through 39, saying, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Now you can go and look at that in John 8. Uh, we talked about it last week. But what he was saying, what Jesus is saying, is that though the people he was talking to were physically descended from Abraham, they didn't have Abraham's faith, and therefore they were not his spiritual children. So the gospel has not failed in regards to Israel. He has not rejected his people. Paul says, why? Because Israel has always been defined according to God's promise. That's his point. Look at verses 7 through 8. Here Paul looks to Abraham and Isaac, saying that not all are descended of Abraham or considered the seed of Abraham, only the children of promise, right? The children of the promise are counted as offspring. So what he's saying is that only people who can rightfully, legitimately call God Father or Abba Father are those who are in his family by grace through faith. And to show this from another example, he goes on to talk about Jacob, also called Israel, right? and his brother Esau, the twins that were born. And he says this, verse 10, Not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul's showing that God sovereignly predestines, God calls, God justifies, all for his glory. So he sovereignly saves. It's all his work. It's not our work. It's not based on our heritage or our efforts. 
Now, as we jump into the rest of chapter 9, twice we see Paul raise what appears to be like natural objections to this. But wait, kind of statements. But wait, I have an objection to what you're saying, Paul. In fact, he mentions two of them. Um, and so, um, what we've just seen in verses 1 through 13 is that God, that Paul is teaching that God chooses to save some and not others, not based on anything in them, whether faith or fruit, present or foreseen, not anything in them, but solely based on his sovereign will and grace and purpose. It's not deserved, it's not earned, it's not inherited, it's all by his grace and his will. So what are the objections then, right? They're probably the same objections that you've had, that I've had. When I was first introduced to this doctrine, I, I wondered, well, what about this or what about that? And it's very similar to what Paul is asking here. The first objection is this, that the doctrine of sovereign election that's unconditional, not based upon what I do or what I choose, but it's just sovereignly elect, elected by grace. The first objection is, objection is that this sovereign election makes God unjust. That, in other words, it's just not fair. And this is the objection that still exists. I've talked to many about this in regards to the doctrine of election. Paul anticipates this objection. And re he reasserts God's essential and necessary justice, even to the extent of saying that God hardens whom he wishes. So he really just double downs here. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So that he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. See, the point Paul is making here is that salvation is dependent on God and his mercy. That salvation is dependent on God. He is sovereign. He is king over all. He's the one who saves. That's his point here. Now, when people have problems with the doctrine of, of divine or sovereign election, usually it signals to me that perhaps they don't have a solid grasp on the doctrine of total depravity. That's chapter 1 of Romans, by the way. Maybe they look at this chapter isolated from the whole of the letter, and they've missed the part where Paul talks at length about our depravity, our fallenness, our lostness. See, when we understand that our nature in Adam, our sin nature, makes us radically depraved, and when we start to understand that the truth is that there's, there's no way inside of us, there's, there's no way because of our nature in Adam and because of our guilt that we can erase our condemnation, that we can work ourselves out of it, that we can atone for it, that we can choose to leave our condemnation and redeem ourselves from our nature in Adam and our sin choices that Paul at length talks about the first three chapters of this letter. There is no way inside of us that we can redeem ourselves. Church, we are in desperate need of God's intervention. That's what Paul is saying here. We need God in his sovereignty to intervene on our behalf. If we understand our condition in the flesh, we will know that there is nothing in us that can help us to understand the truth or to see our sinfulness or to respond to the truth or choose to follow the truth. We need God's intervention at work in us 
to touch our hearts of stone and make them into hearts of flesh so that our eyes will be enlightened to the truth. Ephesians 1, 18 talks about this, Hebrews 6, 4, and other places that God, when he touches us, when he moves in us and calls us to himself, John 6 talks about being drawn to Christ by the Father, that is his action that is drawing us to Christ, opens our eyes and enlightens us to the truth. The truth to what? To our sinfulness, for one. The truth about our sinfulness and the truth about grace and the gospel, our hope. Our eyes are enlightened to the truth. We need God's intervention to do that. We need to be saved, and as he intervenes, <clears throat> and we see our sin, and the Spirit convicts us, what happens? We are cut to the quick in regards to our sin. We understand grace and the gospel, and we place our faith in Christ alone for our salvation, our redemption, our restoration. We put our trust in Christ we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved, like the scripture says. Simple. And that act of repentance, that gift that he gives us of changing our trust in ourselves to trusting in Christ alone, knowing that he becomes our propitiation, our sacrificial atonement, he imputes his righteousness to us, he declares us righteous, and his spirit comes and dwells in us, causes us to repent from trusting in self, as I said, and trusting in Christ alone his work in us and he is our life and he is our hope and everything this is how we're found in christ this is how we are we are united with him when we trust in him by faith and place our faith in him we rest in him he is our hope and our life he alone is our salvation see the summary of the doctrine of election is that god saves sinners and he saves sinners that he's predestined and foreknown by his grace and for his glory he alone does the saving of us. He does it. It's all him. So when we think about who gets saved, I mean, that's a matter left to God alone. Our job is to proclaim the gospel, always being ready to give an account for the hope that's within us, to, to be his ambassador, to represent him in that way. That's what Paul's saying when he says on, in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Literally, that verse says, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That's interesting. See, the man who wills, the word in Greek is thelo. It means to have in mind, to intend, to be resolved or determined. It does not depend on the man who is determined, intent, has a mind, or is resolved to be better or to change. It doesn't depend on that, he says. And the man who runs or exerts himself, right, depending on your translation, but literally the man who runs, the word is treko, which means to run a race course, to exert yourself, to strive hard, to spend your strength in performing or attaining something. It's like pushing through in a great race towards the finish. The word in Greek writings denotes our extreme peril also, which requires every bit of your exertion. It's like fighting for your life or running for your life. So it doesn't depend on the one who wills, who says, I will reason it, I will, I will be resolved and determined that this is what's right. doesn't depend on that, nor does it depend on one who works. And just with all of their effort, with every bit they have for their life, working for it, doesn't depend on that either. Wow. Paul says, nope. Depends not on human will or exertion. This will not save you. 
It requires God's mercy alone. So we're not saved by works. We're not saved by our religious actions. We're not saved by our logic, our heart's desire, our determination, our resolve. That doesn't save us. The Bible reveals we are saved by grace alone, a free gift that God gives to sinners. Amen. This is the gospel. He is sovereign over all things, and he does what pleases him, Psalm 115 says. So we trust in him to do the saving. We obediently preach Christ, and we trust in him. Now that might cause you to pause and say that the doctrine of predestination takes away from human responsibility. If God is sovereignly sovereignly predestined, electing, choosing, if he does that, then where's our responsibility, you may ask? Many people ask that question. I've asked that question, like, where do I fit in? Paul anticipates this objection, too, and the only possible answer here he gives, that God does not answer to us or any other human standard of justice or his, for his actions. In other words, we do not judge God. He is the judge over all. He doesn't answer to us. Look at Romans uh, 9, 19 through 29. <clears throat> you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? In other words, is this fair? For who can resist his will? Paul's answer, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. He goes on from here. Talking about Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, through the number of the sons of Israel will be the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. In other words, what Paul is saying is, does God not hold rights to us as sovereign creator? Is he sovereign or not? That's the question. And Paul doesn't stop there. He reveals that God's predestination of vessels of wrath and of vessels of mercy. I mean, he just dives right in. And he's, he's saying that vessels of mercy serve to magnify his grace upon the vessels which he prepared beforehand for mercy. It's verses 23 and 24. Showing that God's choices, it's not absolutely arbitrary. He's chosen based on his own reasons, which he does not really reveal to us. You know, he takes no creature into his counsel at this point, right? Romans 11, which we'll get to not far down the road here, verses 33 through 36, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So as we get to the end of this chapter, chapter 9, what we see is that chapter 9 reveals the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is on full display here. And the majesty of grace, the holiness of sovereignty. Paul ends this chapter by saying, Behold, I'm lying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Referring to Christ, he is telling us that it's not based on our will, but on God. Our hope is Christ, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I pray if you're watching, if you have not believed in him, that you would. That you put your trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Not on your works or your resolve. Not on your efforts and your great great desire to just press on and be better, but rather to rest in Christ, trusting in his propitiation for our sins. He's our mediator. He alone is our hope. He's our life. Paul will continue in chapters 10 and 11 to teach quite clearly this doctrine of sovereign election. This doctrine has been defended by Augustine and so many theological successors. John Calvin, Calvin warns us against approaching this awesome element of biblical teaching with undue curiosity. Let's let's unpack this to the point of the minutia of it. He's, he warns against that. Trying to answer questions that God did not answer does not benefit us. God is silent on his, on his decisions about whom he chooses, but he is not silent about what he has placed us to be about, which is proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth, not knowing whom he has elected. Rather, we proclaim the goodness of God and the grace of Christ, trusting that he will use it for his glory. You know, Calvin also warns against failing to accept teaching about the marvelous character of God's wisdom and sovereignty, and I think it's great advice. So let's rest in Christ. Let's trust in him alone. The rain has stopped. Blue skies. So until next week, God bless you guys. I, I, I pray that you're blessed and that you can rest in the grace of Christ. We'll see you next week. God bless, guys.